Hey, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Let me share with you what we're going to be doing. We're, gonna, we're walking through the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6. It's on page 811. If you want to grab uh, one of the Bibles in front of you, you can turn on your phone and go there. We're going to be Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 uh, and following. Now, before we jump in, let me just give you a little window into what we're looking at. You know, the purpose of prayer is not for us to bend God's will to ours. That's what we typically think. Hey, God, how can I get you to do what I want you to do? I mean, how many of you have bargained with God? I will stop. I will start. I will give up. I will take up. Whatever it takes, God, just make it happen. That's bending God's will to yours. That's not prayer. That's manipulation. That's saying, God, I'm coming to you not because I love you. I'm coming to you because I think you can give me what I want. But see, the purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to your will. The purpose of prayer is to bend our will to his will. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Now, the challenge with a prayer like this, if you've been in church for a long time, if you haven't, hey, you're in a good place. If you haven't read this passage very much, you're in a good place because these terms are new to you. But for us that have been in a church for a long time, the challenge is these are very familiar passages. And so I think sometimes if you've grown up repeating this in church, uh, you can kind of forget or not really pay attention to what these words mean. And so what I want us to do as we go through this series is to really ask the question, do I want this? And of course we say, you know, I'm a Christian, so of course I want it. But I think it's important to ask, do I really want God's kingdom to come? Do I really want his will to be done? Do I want to give up my dreams, my direction, my hope, my aspirations, and submit those things to God? So we need to ask ourselves, do I really believe this? And not just assume, hey, because I'm a Christian, it just kind of goes along. It's the package deal. you got to believe it. But to ask, do I really submit to that? Because see, Praying is about bending our will to God's will. But second, beyond that, this prayer builds on itself. And it's structured, if you think about it, on the Ten Commandments. If you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments are about God. The first four are about God. The last six, five through ten, are about us. Well, as we jump into into the Lord's Prayer, as we read this, notice how the beginning of the prayer is about God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But the second half is about us. And what Jesus is doing, he's taking this theme, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's applying that to life and to prayer. And he's saying, God, would you bend our will to yours? So you ready? You ready? Let's do it. All right. Hey, that was good. You woke me up. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. The word of the Lord. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they, they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Instead, pray like this. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So here's what I want to do. Let's jump back into verse 9, and let's read this together and read the Lord's Prayer out loud. You guys with me? Okay, and we're going to help you out. If you don't have it, we'll put it up here. Verse 9. And pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well done. I think you knew that. For most of you, I think there was some confidence in reading that. Hey, what we're looking at today is that phrase, um, hallowed be thy name. We picked it up last week. We're going to finish it this week. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We're praying three things that are God-centered. Remember, the first of the Ten Commandments is God-centered. So when we come to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, three things we're asking Hallow your name, set your name apart as holy, your kingdom come, and then your will be done. Now, to simplify those phrases, because they sound, maybe if you've been in a church, they, they maybe resonate with you, but if you haven't, they may not sound as familiar to us and, and what they mean. And so if we think of it this way, what does it mean to pray, hallowed be thy name? One way to think of it is, God, get the attention. God, get the attention in the world. God, get the attention in my life. God, be the center of my attention. God, get the attention. Thy kingdom come. Your kingdom come. God, ready? Set the agenda. God, set the agenda. Set the rules. Set the values. Lord, would your kingdom reign. And then finally, thy will be done. If we're saying, hey, God, get the attention, God, set the agenda Thy will be done. God, would you take control? I don't want to be the center of the attention. I don't want to set the rules and the values. I don't want to set the agenda. God, would you take control of my life? Now, we're going to walk through that together first. Hallowed be thy name. Now, last week we focused on this, so I'm going to be quick. But to hallow the name of God is to set God's name apart as holy. It's to revere God's name. It's to say, hey, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because there is power in God's name. See, in God's name, there is a power to set the captive free. God's name is powerful. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're saying, God, may your name be praised. Now, here's the challenge. You live in a culture and you probably know this, and we're, we're, we're swimming in it. It's hard to get out of it. It touches all of us that's very self-focused. We live in a culture that's constantly saying, focus the attention on you. And you guys know that. That's why you're on Twitter. It's why you're on Instagram. It's why we take those pictures. And some of you, you're not in that culture yet, but it affects you in other ways. 
We are the center of the attention. And in my life, and maybe I'm the only one here that struggles with this, but in my life, I run everything through the prism, through the lens of how does this affect me? When something happens in my house, when something happens in my relationships, in the church, first thought, oh man, how is this going to affect me? See, I am an expressive person, which means the first thing you get, emotion. Now, as a young man, not a good thing to be. Not a real good thing to be when you're angry. And I grew up a pretty angry kid. And so everything that came out of me was just anger. But see, I'm also very analytical, so I start to think, you know, I shouldn't be the attention. Because when I'm the attention, things don't go well. When I'm the center of the attention, I'm very, can I be honest with you in church? I'm kind of confessing right now. I'm very judgmental. Any fellow judgmental people in this room? Just a few. I want you to understand, when things go wrong in my life, the first thing I do is who's to blame. And instead of taking responsibility, just like Adam, I go, hey, the serpent did it, or the wife did it, someone else did it. And that's the essence of sin, is to put ourselves at the center, to blame others, instead of saying, God, would you take the center? Would you get the attention? And what would it look like if God started to get the attention in your life? If each day, instead of getting the attention on yourself or, or really on what you want, instead of just saying, hey, God, I want to bend your will to mine, what if God got the attention? And what if your day started on this idea, God, I want to live with you at the center? I want to live in a way that others see you as the center of my life. Hallowed be thy name. God, would you be the center? Would you take me off the throne of life? And Lord, would you rule and reign over my life? God, would you get the attention? So that's the first thing. Hallowed be thy name. That's verse 9. Now, in verse 10, he says two things. Your kingdom come, and then second, your will be done. So if hallowed be thy name is get the attention, your kingdom come, God set the agenda, thy will be done, God take control. Now, in a sense, if you're studying this and if you read a commentary on Matthew or if you go down to the bottom of your Bibles, you have those little notes, Essentially, what he's saying by that, your kingdom come, your will be done, he's saying the same thing. It's a way of restating something. Because when God's kingdom comes, his will gets done. Now, how does his will get done? What does it look like? It looks like heaven coming down to earth. When the kingdom of God comes, it means the values, the rules, the authority of heaven comes down to earth. And that's what Jesus said when he showed up. See, in Matthew chapter 1, and I think it's in verse 14, Matthew 1 verse 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, meaning good news. Now what's the good news that Jesus proclaimed? Verse 15, saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. See, the New Testament says when you accept Jesus, meaning you look to him as Savior and you follow him as Lord. What does it mean to be a Christian? It's not just simply a prayer. It can start with a prayer. We can confess with our mouth. But if it doesn't result in a life that's looking to Jesus to save us, meaning from my sin, but also from life, save me from being the center I mean, that's, my, that's the Savior I need. I need a Savior that kicks me off the center of life. God, come in and be the Savior. See, when we pray that, 
What's happening is scripture says the kingdom of heaven comes and resides in the human heart. We have been born again. So the Bible will say this, not of perishable, so not of earthly, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. That when we trust in God through Jesus, heaven comes down and we are now, in a sense, alive to God in a way that we weren't before. Because heaven is now dwelling in your heart. Because when the kingdom comes, here's what happens. Things get fixed. It's kind of like Fix It Felix, right? You've seen that movie? I just saw it this week, so my kids were on a Fix It Felix or Wreck It Ralph, whatever it is. It's not Fix It Felix, yeah. What happens is when the kingdom comes, it starts to fix things that sin has broken. Because when God's kingdom, God's reign comes in, it starts to set the agenda. So let me ask you, in your life, who's setting the agenda? <laughs> when you're the center, who's setting the agenda? When you're in arguments, who's setting the agenda? If I'm saying, God, your kingdom come, I want you to set the agenda. Now, let's think through what this kingdom mentality is. Because we don't have a lot of kings today. Now, we do have uh, the United Kingdom, so we do have that phrase out there a little bit. But we don't have a lot of kings one thing we do have, and I think Americans value this, I know I do, uh, we value coaches. And what I mean by that is NFL, we got the Patriots are playing at four, right? You guys excited? No, I know. It's okay. Grace, remember there's grace in the church. There's grace. So we have coaches, and we love coaches. We love our, we venerate, right? Hallowed be thy Bill Belichick. That's what we do. How, honestly, we do, don't we do that? We get excited about it. We venerate them. We hold them up in high regard. That's what it means. We set them apart. They have this mystical idea. But a good coach, when a good coach comes in, or even a bad coach, when a new coach comes in, they say, hey, I'm setting the agenda. You with me? I'm setting the agenda. Uh, coaches are not democratic. They're not voted in by the players. Hey, I like this guy. He was nice to me. No, he is a king, and his job is to rule and to reign in such a way as to set his values and agenda so that those kids, those women, those men, they go out and they do what the coach wants them to do. Now, when a bad coach comes in, it looks just like a new coach. They set values. Guys, this is what we value now. Maybe they put those things up on the wall. Maybe they create some phrases that they want them to memorize. And they say, these are the things we're going to pursue. This is how we practice. This is what we wear. This is what we look like. This is how we show up. Now, when there's a bad coach in place, what happens is the kingdom, the reign of that coach, affects the players. And you see it in the outcome of their lives. You know there's a bad coach because there's no unity on the team. Everybody's for themselves. You see that there's a bad coach in place because you realize the values that they're putting in place is they're valuing one person over another. So it's kind of pitting everyone against themselves. They're taking the most valuable players, the, the, uh, the best players, and they're saying, hey, you're the most important person. Everyone else, you're secondary. And what that begins to do is it starts to isolate people. And instead of a team, you see individuals playing together on the court. See, when a bad coach comes in, his agenda starts to show up in the lives of his players. But the same thing on, on the other side with a good coach is you see the team is coming together. And not only that, everybody, all their skills are being used in a way that they're getting the most out of each person. And they're able to put them together and their weaknesses and their strengths, they're balancing out. And so they're not living up to their potential. Actually, a great team lives way above their potential because what they're doing is in that teamwork, they're acting as one and accomplishing something that on their own they couldn't. 
Now, what is that? That's a kingdom. It's saying, here are the values, here are the rules, here's the agenda, this is what life looks like. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. The Sermon on the Mount is when heaven comes down, when Jesus came and said, the kingdom of heaven is here, here's what it looks like. So if you jump into Matthew chapter 5, you just kind of go back and we just look at the titles. They're in Matthew 5 and 6. And right after the Beatitudes, it's saying these are the values of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God doesn't value things like the world values. See, we value control. Who can take control? We value, and it says, you know, woe to those who are rich now. Now, that doesn't mean that wealth is bad. It's that wealth often leads to an abuse of power. It's really easy. That's why some of us shouldn't be wealthy, right? You know, when I look at my life and I look at what somebody else has, I kind of trust God. Hey, this is the money I can handle right now. Because wealth has a way of leading to power, and that's what he's referring to. Woe to you who live for power. And in some places it says, woe to you who laugh, meaning not those who are happy. What it says is, woe to you who gloat. Woe to you who look at the other person and say, hey, you lost, I won. He's saying these are not the things that the kingdom of God values. God values humility. God values meekness. God values a heart, a life that is dependent on him. Because, see, it's through those values that Jesus accomplished our salvation. Think about Jesus. He became weak. He didn't become strong. He was already strong. He set aside his strength in such a way that in his weakness, in his defeat on the cross, was the greatest victory. That Jesus turned the values of the world upside down by valuing what the world does not value, which is poverty. He came from a poor community. The lack of recognition, nobody knew who he was. Who is this, Jesus? Where is he from, Nazareth? What good could come from Nazareth? He came from the worst of place, and yet through his life he accomplished the greatest of all victories. What is that? It's turning the values of the world upside down. And then when you go through this, be salt and light. He says, hey, church, be a city on a hill. You know what that means? We are a city inside of a city. Now, why is that? Because if you're living according to the new coach and his values and his agenda, we should look different than the community we live in. Sex should look different. Because we have a king who's on the throne. Money should look different. The way we treat each other should look different because we are a city with a different king and a different agenda and different sets of rules. And we're saying, hey, God, I don't say what's right and wrong. I'm going to trust the one that rose from the dead. Even if I disagree, and listen, there's a lot of things in Scripture I disagree. I don't like it. But why do I obey? Jesus rose from the dead. This is the king. I'm going to trust the king. So be salt and light. He talks about uh, do not be angry, do not lust. Why? Because when the kingdom comes, even when your heart is set on anger, it's murder. It's not about the actions, it's about the motive. Lust, it's not about the action of lust. It's about the motive to use another human being for your own satisfaction and pleasure. That's not what the kingdom does. He talks about oaths and divorce. He talks about retaliation. Don't take vengeance. Because rather, when God's reigning, when the kingdom of God comes, we say, hey, God, you know what? I can't judge motives. I know we think we can. I like to think I can. I know why you did that. 
I know what you did. I know what you're after. God says, vengeance is mine. Jason, as much as you think you can see into his heart and her heart, you have no idea what they're going through. Love them as I have loved you. Why? Because when we do that, we are a city set apart in the city. And everyone says, hey, there's a good coach there. I see a life that's different. I see an outcome. You see what he's saying in this? When it's describing a kingdom, it's saying, here are the values. Here's the outcome. This is, this is what it looks like. Thy kingdom come. God, would you set the agenda? Now, just real quickly, in Matthew chapter 26, we see this play out in Jesus' life. There's a story in Matthew 26 on the eve of Jesus' death. In Matthew 26, it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see Jesus living out this whole idea of thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Because in Matthew 26, in verse 36, we read this. And then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And listen to the words. And then he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. So notice what he's saying. How heavy is the sorrow? It feels like death. Something's going on here. And if you notice, you know, in Christian history, if you've ever picked it up, there's a lot of people who have been martyred. And I want you to understand, there's a lot of people who have been martyred and tortured much worse than Jesus. We tend to focus on the physical aspects, and there is a truth to the physical aspects of Jesus' death. But understand, the death of Jesus is not the most horrific death that's ever happened. And yet there are men and women who have walked through that torture with greater, in a sense, confidence, you may say, outward confidence than you see in Jesus. What, what do you see here? What, what, notice what he's saying. I'm sorrowful and troubled. My soul is sorrowful. How sorrowful, Jesus? To the point of death. I feel like I'm dying. Well, nothing's happened yet, church. He's not on the cross. And he goes on to say, so watch with me. And so verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. And some say he sweat drops of blood. He was so filled with anxiety that drops of blood came from his brow. And it says, Father, if it's possible, if it's possible, let this cup. Now, cup means judgment. Often in the Old Testament, cup means judgment. So he's saying, God, may the judgment that I'm about to receive on myself for the sins of the world, I don't want this. It's okay to pray that. If Jesus prayed it, it's okay to say, God, I don't like what's happening. Would you change it? God, I don't want to see this happen. I, I kind of see the path I'm on. I see the direction my family's on, my finance, whatever's going on. I don't want this. God, would you let this pass for me? And then notice what he says, not my will, not my agenda, not my rules. God, take control. When we pray, thy will be done, we're saying, God, I'm not setting the agenda. Would you take control of my life? Now realize, in Jesus' life, that meant the cross. And here's the hard thing. He knew what was coming. See, I think the reason that Jesus is so sorrowful is that on the cross we know that Jesus received our penalty. It says in Scripture, the wrath of God came on Jesus. He became sin who knew no sin, meaning he had been separated from the Father. So get this in your mind. Every time Jesus had turned to the Father in prayer, there was joy. Every time, and he had this kind of joy and experience of the Father that I have probably never experienced or maybe just to a small degree experienced 
at times in my life. He had this, this intimacy and passion with the Father. And every single time he prayed our Father, God was there. And God's love was there. And God's joy was there. And God's presence was there. Except for here. It's the first time, even before he goes to the cross, he turns to the Father, and instead of experiencing his love, his joy, his presence, he's looking into the face of the wrath of God against sin. And you know what he says? I know what's coming. I don't want it, but God set the agenda. God take control. I don't know if I could pray that. If I knew my kid was sick, and I knew what the outcome was, and the outcome wasn't good, I don't know that I would say to God, I would be on the other side, let this pass, let this pass, let this pass. God, you can't do this. You can't be good and allow this to happen. We're not going there. I'm not accepting this. I would be as angry and as frustrated as anybody. That's why God doesn't let us see the future, right? Because we can't see. God can see that out of this defeat is gonna come victory. Out of the death of Jesus comes the resurrection. Out of suffering comes life. We don't see that. Jesus did. He knew what he was headed for, and yet he said, God, thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. God set the agenda. But second, would you take control? How many of us would risk praying that? I don't know if we believe it. And I'm a pastor. I struggle with this. God, you set the What is that saying? God, hey, whatever you want to do with me, do it. Whatever you want, if you want me to suffer, if you want me to succeed, thy will be done. God, if you want to take me off the focus and set me on the sideline to serve someone else, or if you want to put me at the center of an organization and be a part of that, God, thy will be done. I'm not the one that's going to choose. God, use me for your glory, whether through my suffering or my success. Hey, I'm rather on the other side, right? I'd rather do the success side. But what is it like to say, hey, yet though you slay me, I will... I will worship you. Thy will be done. Father, take control. Are we willing to say that? You know, often what I have to do is I got to turn back to some, um, some old uh, dead white guys, and often they're the ones of the theologians of the past. And, and I've got to get some inspiration. One of the persons I turn to is, is John Wesley, and there's a prayer that he prayed. And in this prayer, you see the heart of what it means to pray, Thy will be done. God, your agenda, your control. And he says it this way He says, I am no longer my own but yours. Put me, notice, to what you will. Place me with whom you will. I'm not setting the agenda. I want to be with those people, but God, in the end, would you take control? Put me to doing. And notice what he says. Put me to suffering. I don't know, John. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. Slow down. And now, a wonderful holy God, creator, redeemer, sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I've made on earth, let it be so in heaven. God, I'm signing this with my heart, my life. Would we dare pray that? Not if we don't know our Father. See, the key to saying your agenda, your control, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, is we have to know who we're addressing. Our Father in heaven. And see, 
I know a lot of us have had bad fathers. That's why the New Testament is here to reparent you, to not see your father, your heavenly father, as you see your earthly father. And what Jesus is doing in the stories in the New Testament is showing you, if you've seen me, you have seen the father. A broken reed, I will not bruise. And I will not bruise it. I will not break it. A smoking flax, I will not put it. I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy. Church, my burden is, this is Jesus. You've got to know the Father. But here's, here's the conundrum. This is the thing I struggle with. You see, on the one hand, God was willing to send Jesus to show me his love. And yet God sent Jesus. God asked Jesus to go to the cross. On the one hand, God loves us so much that Jesus was willing to die for us. But on the other hand, God was willing to go to that length to bring about my salvation. Do you see the weight of that? I'm like, hey, thy will be done, but I just want the Father's side. I don't want the kingdom side. You know, I don't want to suffer for your glory. I want to succeed for your glory. See, what allows us to release, like John says here, and says, okay, God, it's not my agenda it's not my values. It's not my kingdom. It's seeing what Jesus has done for us. It's recognizing what I deserve and what he deserved. Jesus is the only one who's obeyed the Father, and yet he was crushed. I've, obeyed the, I've disobeyed the Father, and he hasn't crushed me. Jesus obeyed the Father. Realize this. He, obeyed, he did everything to glorify the Father, and yet the Father says, Obey me. Suffer for me, live, that was gross, live for me, and I will crush you. And he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Why? So that in our disobedience, realize, in our rebellion, in our pushing back against the king, we would not be crushed, but we would be able to say, Father, I am yours. I am yours, and whatever you want to do with my life, I've seen what you've done. I've seen how you rescued me through Jesus. I've seen how you've taken my brokenness on yourself. Father, I want to now live for you, and I want your life to live through me so that others might see that God is reigning and his kingdom is better than our kingdom. It's better. That's the thing that I get when I pray is God is infinitely more satisfying than anything else I've found to pursue, and I can find a lot of things pursue. God is infinitely more satisfying. God is infinitely more glorious. And when we surrender our lives to him, there is a satisfaction because it's called human flourishing when we're living under his authority. Because that's what the Sermon on the Mount is saying. This is what flourishing people do. And we say in life, life, liberty, pursuit of, that's what this prayer is. The challenge is we don't know what happiness is. And he's saying happiness comes when you're not getting the attention. When you're saying God set the agenda and God, would you take control? Now, that's not easy unless you know who the Father is. You know, there is a, a hymn that um, I've only heard a couple of people do it well. But it's an old hymn, and it's by a guy. Uh, let me get his name. I just read this this week. George Matheson. He wrote this about 100 years ago, and George Matheson was a Christian. He had a pretty good life. He had a cushy life, and he was about to get married. And right before he was going to get married, for some reason, he went blind. And not only did he go blind, but she didn't like that, and she was gone. So not only was he looking forward to a life of darkness, he was looking forward to a life of darkness and being alone. 
the one person he loved was gone. So what did he do? He wrote a hymn. That's what we do, right? Everything's going to, I write a hymn. That's, that's what George Matheson does. And listen to these words. And you see in these words, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. O love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe. That in thine ocean's depths it flows. May richer, fuller be. Notice what he's saying. He, he says, I give thee back the life I owe. God, I don't deserve better. That's the challenge in our culture. See, we, and I was talking to somebody this week, we elevate man and we constantly tear God down. And we say, I deserve better. That's, that's the water of our culture. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. I've rebelled. And no one put me up to it. I knew what I was doing. I want the attention. And sometimes I enjoy it. And when I got the kingdom and I got the power, man, I'm loving me some glory. Are you guys with me on that? I've lived that life. But you know what it did? And if I could be honest, nearly destroyed my marriage. I've been married 20 years. I think the first 10 of that, even my wife now, I mean, just bless her heart. You know, you got to say that. She's a woman of grace because my heart is rebellious. And I know when I'm the center and I don't say, God, I give thee all I owe. I give my life to thee. And you know what God gives us in return for this kind of messed up wreck of a life? You know what he gives me? Love that will not let me go. In exchange for my sin, he gives me a love that will not let me go. A love that makes me, as he says, may richer, fuller be. And then he ends, O cross, cross that lifts up my head, I dare not ask to fly to thee from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead. And notice, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. From the cross comes my life. From his suffering, from him saying, thy will be done. I've got flourishing with God. And if Jesus was willing to do that for us in the condition that we are in, can't we trust him in the things that we're facing to say, God, hey, I don't like it. And that's okay to say. I don't want it. But I know you work things together, together for good. I know the plans you have for me. Plans to prosper me. Hey, I don't see it right now. I, I don't like this prospering. This isn't the prospering. Oh, God, sorry about that. This isn't the prospering I'm going for. But to give me a hope and a future. God, you're my father. Help me to trust you. Hey, are we willing to be that kind of community, that bold, to say, God, thy kingdom come. Your will be done. And what area do you need to say that this week? You know, where, where would the reign of God just turn things around? You know how quick it is? God in his grace comes in and he turns things around. He's a coach that gets things done. But see, he's a coach that when we fail him, he doesn't destroy us. He dies for us. He renews us. And he allows the power of his life to work through us. That's someone worth saying, God, may your will be done. And may your kingdom come. You with me? All we got to do is live it. Let's ask him for help. Let me pray. Lord, I just thank you that um, what we see in this prayer is something that you've done. You're not asking us to go where you have not been. 
You're not asking us to rely on things that you have not put in place and tested and shown them to be secure. You tell us you've given us everything we need for life and godliness, but we don't believe you. And we need to admit that. The reason we take control is we don't trust your control. And so forgive us. The reason we set our agendas, the reason we judge others, the reason we don't love as the kingdom of God loves is because, Father, we don't want you to be in control. We want to be the center. And so we do what Jesus told us to do. Repent. Forgive us. Father, take me off the center in my marriage and may flourishing come into my life as I live under the kingdom. Father, take me off the center in the way I'm holding on to material things. And may flourishing come into my life as I I see your agenda and your values play out. Father, my relationships and our world, help us not just to look out there and say, these are people of the problem. But may we first pray, God, would that kingdom come into my heart? Would that agenda saturate my mind? And Lord, would you lead us in a path that directs others to you? Help us, Father. We need your strength. Guide us in this truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond and worship. I just wanted to take a second as we, um, you can stand with me, we're going to sing, but as we celebrate Martin Luther King's day tomorrow, I just had a quote I wanted to read. It says, uh, every genuine expression of love grows out of a consistent and total surrender to God. I love that. Every genuine expression of love grows out of a consistent and total surrender to God. Father, this week, Lord, just help us not to trust in our own understanding, not to rely on our own wisdom, but in all our ways, in every moment of weakness and frustration, anger, judgment, whatever it is, Father, we walk in. In all our ways this week, may we acknowledge you. Thy kingdom come. God, get the attention, and thy will be done. And I thank you, Father, even when we fail, your promises you want to make our path straight. 
Help us, Father, to trust you. And may we grow in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the power and enablement of the Holy Spirit. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. It's good to see you.